0: Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. We live at a moment when scientists are working, struggling, arguing every day over the nature of the pandemic around us. How many asymptomatic cases of COVID-19 are there? How dangerous or safe are various settings? Data is corralled, evidence is amassed, dueling views are litigated in scientific journals, but that's the world as we know it now not the way things always were. You know,
1: people got burned for saying that the Earth moved around the sun. People died. So by contradicting the authorities, you were putting yourself on the line sometimes. It was a a dangerous thing to do.
0: Adrian Tinniswood is a senior research fellow in history at the University of Buckingham in the UK. And he says that in the 1600s, an epic change started to occur in science. Of course, people like Galileo had put forward that heretical idea that the earth went around the sun, a view, by the way, that he had to recant before he got the kind of lenient punishment of house arrest. And in the decades after Galileo's punishment, a group of men in England decided things just had to change. We had to become an evidence-based society.
1: You could get kicked out of university, you could, you, know, you could lose your job, you could be ridiculed. It, was, it wasn't easy for these men to, to sit back and say, let's look for ourselves. Let's just check it out ourselves.
0: Tinnis Wood is the author of the book, The Royal Society and the Invention of Modern Science. And he notes that this challenge to authority often was met with ridicule and shunning. The king made fun of the society and regular folks did too.
1: And that kind of culminated in, in 1676 in Thomas Shadwell's play, The Virtuoso, in which the leading character, Sir Nicholas Jimcrack, performs all sorts of absurd... I mean, this, he gives his name to the word Jimcrack. This is where it comes from. And he, he is um, engaged in all kinds of weird experiments. He, For example, famously, he reads his Bible by the light of a, of a luminescent lump of meat
0: The awkward thing was that all the really weird experiments in the play came from actual experiments done by members of the Royal Society. Experiments discussed in their scientific journal, which Tennis Wood says was the first scientific journal in history. Robert Hooke, an important member of the society, unfortunately went to see the play.
1: And he wrote in his diary afterwards, they looked at me, they looked, at they almost pointed, damn the dogs.
0: But the society, ridiculed though it may have been, was about to revolutionise science.
1: One of the things that the Royal Society was set out to do was to accumulate a record of knowledge, of all our knowledge and bring it together and take a look at it and see how it interrelated and see if it was all true. You know, we, we called it knowledge, but some of it was just sort of was plain wrong, you know, theorizing.
0: Fortunately, some astonishingly brilliant men converged in London in 1660, determined to change things. And they were all men. It would be hundreds of years before women were allowed to join the society. Tennis Wood says some of these folks could honestly be said to know Everything there was to know about a subject at that moment, or in some cases, a few subjects.
1: The classic example of that is Christopher Wren, who, you know, we know as the architect of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, you know, as, as one of, as probably one of Britain's greatest architects. But Christopher Wren was a professor of astronomy. That's what he did as his day job. He was an Oxford professor of astronomy. He was a mathematical scientist. As a young man, he was um, a medic. He's probably the first man, if you've ever had an IV injection, Mm -hmm. he's the first man to introduce intravenous injections. He, he wow. injected opium into the lateral saphenous vein of a, of a dog, the back leg of a dog, basically to see if that opium moved around to its head and the dog got stoned, and the dog did. So, mm. I mean, he, he, uh, this is a guy who can just move from, from medicine to astronomy to mathematics to architecture and back again because mm. you could then. I mean, you imagine that happening now. You know, You, you imagine a doctor... Who, who's a, who's an astronomer, world, I mean, world-leading doctor who's a world right. you know leader in astronomy, who's a world leader in architecture, just moving between the, the, those disciplines. It's, it's unthinkable now, unthinkable.
0: Right. So, so we touched on the fact that people were very resistant to this idea that the Earth moved around the sun. Um, what were some of the other beliefs that people had before the Royal Society really got going, ideas that they were sure were right, but in fact... They were not right.
1: I mean, the the one I mentioned, the idea of the Earth revolving around the sun, is when you think about it, you know, it's not common sense for the Earth to revolve around the sun. If the Earth was whizzing around through space, why don't we get blown off it? You yeah. know, if it's yeah. spinning around on its axis, why aren't we flung into space? You can see the sun revolves around the Earth. You can see it rises in the morning. It sets in the evening. It tracks across the sky. Of course the sun moves around the Earth, doesn't it? And it would be crazy to say anything different. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as actually experience goes, everybody could see that. So when somebody comes along and says, hey, you know, this is all wrong. Your universe is wrong. What you see right. is wrong. Of course people are going to say, no, I mean, but yes, you're right. I mean, they also, they believed in unicorns. They believed in centaurs. Magic and science In the popular imagination in the 17th century were mixed up. There wasn't a division between them, I don't think. It's one thing the Royal Society did was to try and carve a a division. But people believed stuff. (laughs) It was that vague. You know, that sounds vague and it was.
0: (laughs) People believe stuff. Well, sure. (laughs) Yeah, that, that, that,
1: <laughs> yes, that, that should be our motto, I think. People believe right. stuff. <laughs>
0: um, so, so, what was so revolutionary about the founding of this, you know, relatively small society?
1: Yeah, very small. I mean, you're looking at 12 people, 12 founders. They all got together one afternoon after um, Christopher Wren was a lecturer at a college in, in London, Gresham College, and he'd just given his, his astronomy lecture. And 11 of his mates were there. They were all interested in in the new science, in the experimental philosophy. And they got together in the rooms of a colleague and they said, you know, let's have a club. (laughs) Let's have a gang. Um, (laughs) You've got this coming together of some astonishingly bright men. I mean, really, really, really bright men. But it's not just their intelligence. It's the coming together, I think. This was (laughs) the first scientific institution in the world, um, somebody's going to ring you up and contradict me on that, but I'm telling you, it was the first scientific. Okay. It was the first scientific. <laughs> it, okay. it, it the first scientific. <laughs> and the idea of it being an institution, the idea of it having continuity, you know, it had a royal charter, which which put, put it on the same kind of footing as today as a, as a trust or a foundation, you know, so it's separate from its individuals. They could all die and there would still be a royal society there. And that's the big thing, I think. It gave it independence. But I can't, I can't downplay too much the fact that the, the members were just astonishing. You know, they, they, were, they were men who, gosh, I mean, they, they, they were just so brilliant. So brilliant. And it's this magical coming together, magical, miraculous coming together of these minds, these people who all said, take no one's word for it. Have a look for yourself, Hmm. find out, experiment, hypothesize, and then prove it.
0: Can you give me, you know, one of the big things they did were these experiments, sometimes a little hairy and bloody kinds of things. But can you give me a sense of some of the experiments that were done early on that like different folks at the Royal Society were doing often uh, for each other?
1: Yeah, I mean, early on, there's a, a preponderance of medical men in the in the early Royal Society, so a lot of the experiments were medical ones, and yeah, they they were awful. Oh, they were awful. I mean, there 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 are things done to dogs and cats and puppies and kittens, vivisection, um, you know, without benefit of of um, uh, of anesthetic. Mm. So Robert Hooke, who was the chief experimenter, the curator of experiments of the Royal Society. I mean, he performed an experiment on a, a dog where he he inserted a tube into its trachea and kept it alive while well, he cut it up, basically. And even he, you know, in that less sensitive age, even he was appalled at the suffering of the animal. And um, he swore he'd never do the experiment again. He did do it again, but he swore he'd never do it again. And You've got Robert Boyle, another early member, found a founder member, whose experiments with air pumps were used to sort of, you know, let's see how how the air pump works. Well, let's get a sparrow and just stick it in the, the vacuum and see if it dies. And yes, indeed, it does die. And Let's experiment with poisons and puppies. Let's see what happens. Well, you know, th- th- these are very public things going on. But you're talking about an age when, for example, when dissections were public events.
0: Hangings, right?
1: Um, yeah, hang criminals were just given over to doctors for dissection. And people kind of came in to watch. You, you wouldn't catch me watching. Good Lord. Oh, but... um sensibilities were different, you know, they were different.
0: And were there things that came from these experiments that changed medicine or that changed what people were able to do or, you know, know going forward?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the prob- I suppose the most famous is the early experiments with blood transfusions, building on Wren's early work with, you know, with intravenous injection some of the early experiments in the 1660s with Royal Society involved transfusing a sheep's blood into a human being. And, wow. I mean, remarkably, the, the human being survived. I suspect it was because the the process was so inefficient that he probably just got a teaspoonful of blood you know, rather than a pint. But those kind of experiments, you know, they pioneered the way for blood transfusion.
0: Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to Adrian Tinniswood. He's the author of The Royal Society and the Invention of Modern Science. Um, okay, so probably the most famous president, I'm guessing, of the Royal Society was Isaac Newton. Um, can you just give me a sense of how Newton's life intersected with the society and these, and these kind of amazing contributions that he made to math and to physics?
1: Yeah, I mean, he had a, he had a rocky start, actually. As, a, as, a, as quite a young man, he presented papers to the Royal Society, and Robert Hooke, who was a very difficult man, Robert Hooke dismissed uh, Newton's contributions on the, the reflecting telescope. And he'd, when Newton presented his theories, uh, theories of light, Hooke just said, well, I thought of that. Um, <laughs> this, <laughs> Who <laughs> really, hasn't, <that's> really? <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, remember that this is a time when, when precedence and priority are really important. You know, that whenever anyone came up with a discovery, somebody else, not necessarily hooked, but somebody would say, well, I thought that ages ago. Right, Which right. is one reason why the Royal Society established its journal, its philosophical mm-hmm. transactions, to set down dated records of when things were first discovered. But Newton had a rough time of it. He fell out with Hook, and Hook could be very, very difficult indeed. He was a genius, Robert Hook, but he was a very difficult man. So Newton steered clear of the Royal Society for much of his career. It was only in 1703, when Robert Hook died, that Newton felt he could become really involved with the Royal Society, and he became president of the Royal Society mm-hmm. and um, revolutionised it. And you know, he is he is the most famous president of the Royal Society. And golly they've had very famous they've had famous presidents but he's the most illustrious of them all i think you know this giant it's said that you know the famous phrase about if i've seen further it is from standing on the shoulders yes. of giants yes and the robert hook who was really well, was quite paranoid robert hook even took umbrage at that. He took offense at that because Hook was very short and he thought, he thought that Newton was making a, a snide remark about his stature when he talked about <laughs> the shoulders of giants. It was that petty.
0: What do you think were the most important ideas that came out of the Royal Society at any time, you know, up till today, from its founding till today? And who were some of the most important people that we might know about but not realize uh, the role that the society played in
1: their lives. Wow, that's a big one. Um, because, I mean, if you think about it, you know, Einstein was a fellow of the Royal Society. Really? Um, Rutherford. Okay. Rutherford was president, of the, you know, the early atomic scientist. He was president of the Royal Society. Darwin was a fellow of the Royal Society. Newton, we've, we've, we've said, was a member of the Royal Society. Joseph Banks, the famous botanist, was president of the Royal Society for 42 years. Christopher Wren, who, um, as I would argue, was the greatest architect that Britain produced, was a president of the Royal Society for a couple of years. You know, you've got Boyle, you've got Hook, you've got so many people. And it was a two-way street. You know, they gained from being made fellows of the Royal Society, they gained in status from that, and the Royal Society itself gained status from having these prestigious scientists Mm. as, as, you know, on board, if you like.
0: The Royal Society still exists. Um, close uh-huh. to, I think, 300 members have won Nobel Prizes at this point. And, he, yeah. and the Nobel Prizes were only started in the 1900s. Um, what is its role now?
1: Its role is a lot more complicated, I think, because okay. in a way, you know, over the last 200 years, you've seen specialist societies carve off bits mm-hmm. and pieces of its original remit. So, for example, the Royal Astronomical Society. Now, you know, you would publish papers on astronomy in their proceedings rather than the Royal Society. So it now has a moral role, in a sense, you know, looking looking over the shoulder of science. And in an age when you've got governments and big corporations taking on scientific endeavour, you know, as they should, which is fine, you need an independent body to just say, hey... Are you sure that's right? Are you sure this is the way you ought to be going? An independent voice in the scientific community is more important now than it has ever been.
0: Do you think, as we look back and think about the society that has existed, I mean, now getting close to 400 years, what are there lessons that we can learn um, from... The establishment from the development of, of the Royal society and what they aim to do
1: I, I, that's a that 's a difficult one carly I mean the lessons in a way have been learned. the approach to the world that they pioneered is now one that we take for granted you know and that's that 's a mark of success if ever there was mm-hmm. one you know it 's now part of our worldview that idea of ocular inspection, that idea of taking nobody's word for it, of looking for yourself, of experiment to prove or disprove hypothesis, the experimental method, you know, that's what they invented <laughs> and now we just do it, it's part of our life. I think the world will be a much greyer place if the Royal society had never existed and I, I i think that we wouldn't be as far advanced as we, we are, that's a very dangerous thing to say um, but... My sense is that they moved, they moved knowledge forward, in a way that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the institution with, you know, with a continuing existence like the Royal Society.
0: Hmm. Adrian Tinniswood is a senior research fellow in history at the University of Buckingham. He is the author of *The Royal Society and the Invention of Modern Science*. Adrian, thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
0: As you heard, the Royal Society did a lot to advance medicine, but healthcare was still pretty crude up until fairly recently. If you want to learn more about the sometimes gross history of medicine, we've got a conversation I had a while back about the birth of modern surgery. And the history is amazingly fascinating, despite its disgustingness. That'll be at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Teresa Lawler. And a big welcome this week to our listeners on WJCT in Jacksonville. We are glad to have you with us. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.